Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Brady Heberlin. Today's show is The Limits of Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising with Asad Haider. We're listening to In the Moment, the title track off the 2015 release from drummer and composer Micaiah McCraven. His work accompanies us throughout this show. The murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police on May 25th has quickly become the catalyst which has given rise to mass uprisings in every major city in the United States. In the days following Floyd's murder, thousands upon thousands of people across the country have taken to the streets in a massive display of anger and protest against the structural, racialized violence that operates in the name of the U.S. police system. The uprisings have raised with them the demands for the defunding of police departments across the U.S., the abolition of the prison system, the indictment of murderous police officers, and the immediate release from jail of arrested protesters, among other things. Calls for justice for George Floyd and the insistence that Black Lives Matter has provided in this moment the potential for massive fundamental change to the system of racialized violence that has plagued the United States since its inception. While this immense degree of mass uprising is certainly unprecedented in the history of the United States, this is not a moment that stands in isolation. The protests and the demands they inhabit share a common legacy with the civil rights movement, a legacy that is firmly rooted in the struggles and organizations of black revolutionaries. Here to help us better understand that legacy and its importance in the current moment is author and historian Assad Haider. Haider is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, an online Marxist research collective, and author of the 2018 book, Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. In Mistaken Identity, Haider engages with the history of revolutionary struggles in the United States that center on racial and particularly black oppression with the aim for emancipation. Haider recognizes the origins of identity politics in these emancipatory struggles of the 20th century and opposes its current usage as a practice of exclusion and neutralization to the collective necessity of insurgent universality. In doing so, Haider insists on the interconnected relationship between racial oppression and class oppression, asserting that, quote, not only is socialism an indispensable component of the black struggle against white supremacy, the anti-capitalist struggle has to incorporate the struggle for black self-determination, unquote. Episode producers Bella Bravo and Cole Nelson begin by asking Haider about his claim that politics happens under conditions a claim that suggests emancipatory politics can only arise under very precise moments of rupture from the status quo. Haider then considers what the conditions are in the present that may give rise to a thoroughly emancipatory politics. And now, The Limits of Spontaneity with Assad Haider on Interchange on WFHB. I'm... One of the founding editors of Viewpoint Magazine, which started uh, during the Occupy movement, and uh, I'm the author of Mistaken Identity. And um, my research is really uh, very broadly about Marxist theory on a global scale. Uh, and in the work I did in Viewpoint, we did a lot of work on looking back at some kind of hidden traditions of uh, Marxist theory and organization in Europe and also in the United States. And in Mistaken Identity, I tried to look at how 
that tradition was involved in the anti-racist movements in the United States and generated theories of uh, racism and capitalism. One of the axioms that you claim is that politics happens under conditions, which seems simple enough, but as you as you propound it, it's sort of fascinating and sort of rigorous claim. So I was wondering if you can give a little background to exactly what, what you mean by politics happens under conditions and substantiate that a bit. So this is an argument that I borrow from the French theorist and militant Sylvain Lazarus, who is sort of usually known as being one of the comrades and collaborators of Alain Badiou. Uh, but he really formulated a kind of independent political theory that Badiou then drew on. So it, it's uh, now be starting to be uh, read in English and appreciated on its own terms. Um, his, he, he has a series of axioms about politics, and I'll say that some of the most significant ones here, starting axiom is that people think, you know, which uh, also it seems like a completely ordinary claim, but it's one which is really uh, a kind of division in the way that we understand politics, because you have the claim that people think in general, generic claim that people think, juxtaposed with the claim which has been the dominant theme in political thought, that only some people, the elite, the educated, the aristocracy, the rulers, are capable of thought. And the affirmation that people think is the, the starting point of emancipatory politics in the sense that it is able to posit the equality, the equal capacity of people to think. And so, you know, that's a kind of basic condition. But what Lazarus goes on to say, before we get to that point about conditions, Another point that he makes is that uh, the, the slogan is that politics is sequential and rare. Meaning, first of all, what do we mean when we say that politics is rare? Well, the claim that people think is a claim that addresses a kind of, it's a, it's a constant. It's something that is about the fact that people are always capable of thought. Yet emancipatory politics is rare. Those moments in which people engage in a kind of uh, mobilization that challenges the whole existing order. This does not happen that often. And um, that's why it's so important to identify the moments that it does happen and to identify the forms of thought that happen in those moments. That is, how do people understand the situation they're in? How do they put forth uh, different strategies, aims, practices, forms of organization in those situations? And so we have to be attentive to those rare moments, and we have to be also aware that they have beginnings and ends. Uh, and so there are sequences, and there are sequences which are specific. They have specific ways of operating. It's not as though politics is the same all the time, which is why a lot of the views that people have uh, about you know, the ways of doing politics as being something that's the same for every situation, so you can make general claims about it. That's very problematic. That's something that's thrown into question by this perspective. And part of what's thrown into question by this perspective is the idea that there's a general historical process, that there's a kind of linear progression of history, which is moving towards a particular goal, and that politics is going to happen as a result of the evolution of the historical process. And this is something which actually has been a major claim of a certain kind of Marxist orthodoxy. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. 
Today's show is The Limits of Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising. Episode producers Bella Bravo and Cole Nelson speak with historian and critical theorist Assad Haider about the history of revolutionary struggles in the United States that tie together anti-capitalism and anti-racism, exploring how that history relates to the struggles of today. There's been a Marxist orthodoxy which says that there are laws of history and that historical laws are leading to a particular progression in which workers will organize and their organization, which is an expression of these historical laws, will result in a revolutionary change which realizes the goal of history. Now, that is justified by certain works of Marx, especially by the Communist Manifesto and so on, but it's something that he comes to question and criticize, uh, especially according to Lazarus's analysis by the time of the Paris Commune uh, in 1871, when it seems like an overturning of the capitalist system and the possibility of a different form of life, a form of life that goes beyond capitalism and beyond the state, seems to appear as the result of accident. It doesn't res- appear as the result of historical laws. And so Lazarus's argument is that that idea of the, the linear progression of history is thrown into question at that point. And then with the politics surrounding the Russian Revolution, we get the new idea that politics happens under conditions. That is, that you can't rely on historical laws to just express themselves in politics, that politics has to be affirmatively positive. It has, it's not something that's just there and will just happen has to be actively generated. And of course, you know, in this context, the form that, that, that this took was the party. Um, but we don't have to attach this uh, much broader point to just the form of the party or some kind of mechanistic blueprint of what a party would look like. The, the general insight is that politics happens under conditions. It has to be affirmatively posited. It has to be produced. And um, that's, that's, I think that remains an important and challenging insight for the present. It might be a bit premature to uh, prescribe a, a, a certain form of politics that is, that is nascent currently. Um, but I'm curious if, if you can otherwise point to certain conditions that you see are coalescing presently, whereby an attendance form of politics specific to these current conditions is is incumbent? Well, um, one thing that we can note about this period, one reason that this period is so striking, that, that there's so much discussion, that people are scrambling to figure things out, it's precisely confirmation of that point that politics is rare, that we don't see this kind of, um, this level of the concrete challenge to the existing order. We don't see this happening all the time and we haven't seen it happen for quite a while. And the level at which it's happening now is um, unprecedented in so many ways. And so part of doing politics is recognizing that, is that recognizing that there's something exceptional about the moment that we're in right now. Now, the idea that politics happens under conditions, this is this is not something, uh, you, you know, you use the term prescription, prescriptive, and th- that's important because to say that politics happens under conditions is not a descriptive point. It's that we're not describing what's already happening. We have to be able to prescribe a politics. And so we see prescriptions happening 
within the existing movement, and often there are conflicting prescriptions. And that's, you know, that's the character of politics, that you have a prescription which says that we should defund and abolish the police. That's one prescription. Another prescription is to say um, we should uh, have a diversification of the ruling class and we should have the reform and better training of the police departments. That's another prescription. And these are contradictory prescriptions. They're incompatible. And uh, part of doing politics is to make a prescription right now and to call for the development of the antagonism that is spontaneously occurring into something which is continuous and organized and can present an ongoing challenge. It's time for our first break. This is Micaiah McCraven's track, Spontaneous, from his 2015 album, In the Moment. When we return, Haider will offer his observations on the current uprisings. Stay with us on Interchange. Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is The Limits to Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising with critical theorist Assad Haider. In this segment, Haider offers his observations on the current uprisings based on his own experiences, suggesting that there has been a genuine spontaneity in the form of these uprisings preceding any explicit form of organization. Along this, he considers various strategies of containment mobilized by the ruling class to delegitimize the uprisings and neutralize their sustained political strength. Your last point about organization presenting an ongoing challenge is really important. This uh, this aspect of, of, of conflict um, with the present order. Um, and so my question looks at two prescriptions um, that you just pointed out. The, the, I know that these are just two examples and then the conditions that they're rising from, which are, you know, this is a post-Ferguson moment. 
and uh, the number of people murdered by the police annually has remained consistent since then. Um, the some of the prescription prevailing prescriptions from Ferguson were de-escalation trainings, um, procedural changes, the addition of body cameras, and various other police reforms. And if we use the metric of the number of uh, people, specifically Black people in the United States being killed by police, uh, that metric remains unchanged by those prevailing prescriptions and uh, the level of organization that was able to carry those forward. And so today to hear those same prescriptions again, I think is for a lot of people has felt relatively offensive. And so I guess what my question um, is in this moment, what are some of the conditions that you're seeing that have accumulated or that have changed even since maybe writing mistaken identity? Um, and how uh, do you see that affecting the prescriptive politics that we're hearing? It remains to be seen how mistaken identity will be reread in this moment. You know, I mean, obviously the book was very divisive. I knew that going into writing it, that that would happen, but it still took me by surprise in many ways. Uh, the specific uh, lines of debate that emerged. Um, I think part of what we're now seeing, I mean, at this stage, at, at the evolution of these uprisings, we are, we are seeing a strategy of containment and neutralization from the political elite, from the ruling class, um, which is trying to take a posture of opposing racism while at the same time attempting to suppress the radical and anti-systemic character of the uprising. And this is, this is a strategy that we're going to see um, really, uh, um, it's, it's going to be really aggressive. And that's from the beginning, you know, the rhetoric that came from above, that uh, anything that went outside of the confines of the uh, legality of the existing system was, was attributed to outside agitators. It was attributed to white anarchists who had white privilege and didn't really represent the demands of people who are harmed by police violence. You know, I can empirically verify that this is completely false from uh, my own experience observing what happened in the first few days. Um, but that is emerging as a very powerful strategy of neutralization. And that was the basic thesis of mistaken identity, which was that uh, we have a whole, whole history of mass movements against racism, which were also mass movements against capitalism, it was an inextricable struggle for these movements. And that what we began to see as these movements were defeated or ran into a kind of strategic and organizational crises was a strategy of neutralization. And I associate uh, what is called identity politics, the category of identity as a way of understanding race. I associate that with a strategy of neutralization. And that's precisely what we're seeing happen now. And, and um, so that uh, line of demarcation between the mass movements, which simultaneously challenge police violence and challenge uh, exploitation and economic inequality, which is what looting represents, there is going to be an attempt to neutralize them uh, with a posture of anti-racism. And it's a posture that has to be exposed as false. You mentioned your personal experience over the first few days. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I would say, you know, there have been a lot of changes across this 
process. Um, it's very hard to right now draw general conclusions or to try to even identify the trajectory because it's the, this is still unwritten. But I would say that what I've observed from the beginning, first of all, there's been a division between um, the daytime legal actions in which there's a large presence of, you know, let's say nonprofit organizations of a kind of bureaucratic leadership which is very invested in negotiation with the police, if not collaboration with the police. There's an attempt to contain and condemn any action which goes beyond the existing uh, legal forms. Um, so, you know, I, I've been in some demonstrations where self-appointed leaders would say that if you see someone breaking a window or throwing a bottle at police, you should expose them. You should you know, the expression was call them out, which essentially means uh, inform on them the police, which is a, an extraordinary position for someone who's leading a, leading a demonstration to take. Of course, what, is, what does leadership mean? I mean, this, this has been a genuinely spontaneous process in so many ways. I, a lot of the argument that we made in Viewpoint um, as we looked at the history of workers' struggles, workers' organization, was that spontaneity is often an illusion because when you, you see something that looks spontaneous, it often means there are microscopic forms of organization that you weren't able to recognize or weren't apparent to you, but they have their own histories and they've been going on for a long time. And that's certainly true now that there are many different organizational processes underlying this of, of groups that are participating, that are playing a role and contributing. But it's really striking how much of this is genuinely spontaneous. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is The Limits of Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising. Episode producers Bella Bravo and Cole Nelson speak with historian and critical theorist Asad Haider about the history of revolutionary struggles in the United States that tie together anti-capitalism and anti-racism exploring how that history relates to the struggles of today. You have people coming out onto the streets who don't appear to have participated in a political demonstration. Now, of course, many of those people have had antagonistic confrontations with the police before. They have plenty of experience with that. And you see a division there. So you see a division between, let's say, a liberal kind of group, which is against racism, which wants to challenge its own white privilege. They hold up signs about their white privilege and so on. And they're made very uncomfortable by uh, anything that goes outside of uh, the acceptable forms of protest. Uh, but then you see many people who are, especially at night, uh, in those first few days, especially the actions that took place at night were people who were very familiar with confrontation with the police, even if they hadn't taken part in an explicitly, uh, even if they hadn't taken part in actions that are usually represented as political. And um, I would notice in those first few days that at night um, you would have crowds in which if someone began to build a barricade, there would be, you know, other people would lend a hand or, or, or they would think, oh, that's a good idea. Let's, let's also do that. Let's find ways to slow down the police, to prevent them from reaching us, to prevent them from beating us up, which is a very rational perspective. And um, I think that over time, that has softened somewhat. Um, I'm seeing more 
of the containment strategy uh, at action. But, but, but I would say that in those first few days, what we saw was um, really an extraordinary, spontaneous expression of antagonism towards the state. And uh, that, that was a very politically advanced element, even though it was spontaneous. And in many ways, the left, the organized left, is far behind that level of political consciousness and action. Right. And you pointed to in one of your articles for Salon that the old new left has sort of avowed the principle of get out and vote for the lesser of two evils. And that, that too is sort of expressing itself as one of these sources of containment and neutralization of what is going on in the streets of the spontaneity of um, organizing in the streets. I was wondering if you can sort of speak to that tension within the left specifically. So as I said before, I think that right now the rebellions that we're seeing are more politically advanced to the organized left. They're more politically advanced even than uh, many elements which come out of a previous revolutionary left. And this is, um, there. As we look back to the 1960s, I mean, there's a lot of comparison right now to the 1960s because of the riots. And of course, the riots, um, as I tried to describe in the article you mentioned, the riots came at a moment which was an organizational and strategic crisis for the civil rights movement. Because the civil rights movement had been based on the strategy of nonviolent protest in the South. And it targeted... Um, legal segregation. And so the policy changes of 1964 and 1965 were kind of the major victories of the civil rights movement. But it was clear after then, and this is what Martin Luther King and others across the movement were trying to grapple with, was that you had a level of great discontent in the northern cities, which was responding to conditions which were not the same as legal segregation, but you had de facto forms of segregation. You had uh, economic conditions that were related to discrimination in housing, the division, the division of urban space, the policing of black communities. And the riots responded to that. And so the riots were a challenge from the Watts riots to the to the riots of Detroit and Newark and so on. These were challenges, both to the idea that the legal reforms could represent uh, the overcoming of racism and to the existing strategies of the movement. And so at that point, it became necessary to find other strategies. And, and of course, the new left in this period had been in so many respects mobilized by the civil rights movement, by participation in the civil rights movement. You know, white students participated in the civil rights movement. They were also participating in the movement against the Vietnam War. They were participating in their own struggles at universities. And through, through the processes uh, that happened in the 60s, they became increasingly radicalized. Uh, the example of the Black Panther Party, the Black Power Movement, uh, brought them to an anti-capitalist perspective. It brought them to a perspective uh, in which um, nonviolent action to achieve legal reform was not adequate. Um, and this was a moment of global revolution. This was a moment in which you had student revolts uh, from France to China to Mexico. You had general strikes and you had uh, the national liberation struggles with the Vietnamese national liberation struggle defeating the U.S. Army. 
And so you had a moment of global revolution. You had a moment in which there was the possibility of a politics, which was one that totally questioned the existing world and called for a total challenge and the possibility of, of moving to a different world. And that went into crisis. Global revolutionary movements, uh, once again, either were defeated or they ran into their own uh, limits, the limits of national sovereignty, the limits of global capitalism. And so many of the people who participated in that moment will then go on to say, okay, we were always under an illusion. We, were, we always thought that um, this level of social change was possible, which is really going too far, which is really not possible. And, you know, if you believe in that, if you believe that it's possible to change the world, ultimately you run the risk of uh, complicity with totalitarianism, of adventurism and extremism, and you don't actually uh, make the kinds of adjustments within the existing reality, which now we believe are necessary. It's time for another break. The music for this part of the show is The Newbies Lift Off from Makai McRaven's 2018 album, Universal Beings. When we return, Asad Haider will speak to the important role youth play in today's George Floyd uprisings and the parallel to movements of the 1960s and 70s. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is The Limits to Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising with critical theorist Asad Haider. In this segment, Haider emphasizes the important role that young protesters have in the current uprisings, comparing this to the youth movements in the 1960s and 70s, which likewise challenged the existing social order. The comparisons are ripe, and Haider highlights the differences that young protesters face in today's uprising such as the diminishing of their demands by previous generations of activists.
as these people grow old, as they grow up and mature, they come to a kind of position of disavowing their previous revolutionary ideas. And that's what we saw and what I was responding to in the Salon article was that, you know, uh, open letter from the previous members of the new left who said, look, now we have to understand that the furthest extent that our politics can go to is to, de- to try to avert the risk of four more years of Trump and that we can try to essentially, you know, to, to look to the slogan that responds to the pandemic of a kind of return to normals. Uh, so it means abandoning that position that they once took of questioning the existing reality and calling for a different kind of world. And so the fact that people are now taking up that possibility, that the young people today are taking up this possibility, that we can call for a different kind of world rather than calling for modifications within the existing world, that may be threatening to people who want to cling to the fact of growing up. But I think that that is actually a sign uh, that politics is becoming possible again. Because after the defeat of the 1960s, 1970s kind of revolutionary moment, you had neoliberalism, you had the idea that there is no alternative. And that was a kind of general condition of depoliticization. Another article I wrote for Viewpoint about depoliticization. This is the historical condition of depoliticization, which says that all attempts to change the world lead to disaster. But I think we're seeing the possibility of the rebirth of politics. And I think that we did see some signs of that in the uh, kind of grassroots support for Bernie Sanders. But now we're seeing an even more advanced expression of that in the uprising. Uh, You uh, pointed out in your article uh, about MLK, uh, the role of the youth, and it struck me as being very similar to what we're seeing in the uprisings today. Um, And specifically talk looking at um, unemployment rates, uh, as well as like uh, police brutality um, that youth were facing in the 1960s. And um, what you described uh, with your personal experience in the first few days of the uprising happening now, fits very well with what I saw um, in specifically in the actions taken by by youth. And it's hard, it was hard for me to not imagine that, you know, these are young people who are just realized that they're going to grow up in uh, in an economic recession that rivals the Great Depression, um, like the benchmark of economic trauma of the 20th century. And um, these are also uh, young people who have, you know, who who know the name Tamir Rice. I'm wondering if we're looking at the youth today, the history of youth in radical movements, what pitfalls or other like neutralization strategies, what are the, like the warnings for the, the youth today that you have? Well, this is a very interesting point of comparison because the youth mobilizations of the 1960s came after the post-war boom and they came in a period in which it was far more socially possible for people to just be full-time political active, to devote most of their time to that. Whereas since 2008, we've had a situation in which, you know, which has just been summed up by the phrase, no future, in which young people can't expect to get careers. They don't have a social safety net to fall back on. Um, 
And there are a lot more barriers and challenges actually to participating in politics. So when they do participate in politics, it's something that we have to take note of. It's something that's really uh, uh, significant. And I think that right now, as you point out, the young people who are participating in the uprisings, I think for them, there, there isn't this kind of um, artificial distinction between a rebellion against police violence and a rebellion against the conditions of unemployment, hyper-exploitation, and precarity uh, that are basic conditions of our lives right now. I think that um, for the spontaneous youth element of the current uprisings, this is all part of the same dysfunctional and unacceptable system. I think that when, I mean, the, the containment and neutralization strategies, the people who are trying to carry those out, who are part of the political elite, who are part of the established uh, political conventions, they try to introduce these artificial distinctions. And they try to make these distinctions and see everything as, every issue as having a separate kind of uh, minimal um, uh, policy outcome that you will reform the police department in this way and then you will, you know, um, make these very moderate and uh, kind of totally inadequate uh, movements towards improvement and access to health care, which will stop short of the um, necessary measure of universal health care. You, you'll see all kinds of moderate policy proposals which are supposed to respond to discrete and separate political issues. Whereas I think that the, what, the, the idea that was contained in the spontaneous rebellions was that it's all part of the same system. And so now, the, the issue now is to figure out how to counter the strategy of neutralization. And that means that, um, I mean, that's one of the limits of spontaneity, which is that if you have spontaneous action, and then you have an organized strategy of neutralization, neutralization has the whole force of the state, all of the resources of capital behind it. To counter it, you need new forms of organization. And that's the next question for the movement, is what forms of organization are going to come out of these rebellions that can sustain that kind of antagonism towards the system rather than allowing it to be neutralized? You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is The Limits of Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising. Episode producers Bella Bravo and Cole Nelson speak with historian and critical theorist Assad Haider about the history of revolutionary struggles in the United States that tie together anti-capitalism and anti-racism, exploring how that history relates to the struggles of today. As sort of a precursor to that question, um, there are... There are a number of explicit, use the word conditions again, under which um, these forms of organization have to take into account. As you put it, um, in mistaken identity, the question that you face or that you pose in uh, direct relation to the new communist movement uh, is how can a revolutionary organization be built in the forbidding climate of American politics? And we're still very much seeing um, this forbidding climate of American politics. It it's, hasn't gone away, and there is this very 
explicit sort of precondition for these organizations to face the organized forces of neutralization. And I'm wondering if you can sort of identify the most common elements of this of this force of neutralization as people are starting to approach this question of organization. Um, how is how is neutralization expressing itself currently in an, in a sort of organized manner? Well, you know, the general question about um, the difficulties of revolutionary organizing in the United States, I mean, there are a lot of components to this. You know, it goes back to an old question, you know, why is there no socialism state? And it, it's, it is a striking difference from uh, a lot of what you saw in Europe with huge mass communist parties that lasted into the 70s, um, which in the 70s often appeared to be on the verge of actually entering into state power. And there are a lot of reasons why uh, American politics have been different. A lot of it has to do with specific contingent conditions of state repression that were successfully able to destroy and undermine a great deal of the communism. Another aspect of it has to do with the dynamics of race, the way that race was used as a successful strategy of social control um, that prevented a unified working class movement from forming. And uh, those problems are still with us. We still have powerful uh, legacy of anti-communism, which has undermined the most progressive aspects of the labor movement, undermined the most progressive aspects of social movements in general. And we still have the problem of race as a means of social control, uh, which underlies Trump's presidency and underlies a more structural kind of persistence of fragmentation of the working class and so on. And um, so right now, I think those strategies of anti-communism and race as social control have been so powerful. And the complicated thing about race is that to respond to race as a form of social control means that the anti-racist struggle has to be taken up by the whole working class. And this was a point that was made, once again, we go back to the 1960s and we look at the introduction of the term white privilege, which at the time was white skin, the skin uh, aspect was dropped at a certain point. But now white privilege is talked about in terms of you know, the individual con conduct and consciousness of white people. But when it was introduced, the idea of white skin privilege was to say that race is a strategy of social control, that white supremacy is used as a way of getting white workers to identify more with their exploiters, with their white bosses and managers, rather than the other members of the working class who are subjected to much higher levels of exploitation and repression and domination. And it's by getting white workers to kind of join the club of whiteness rather than understanding themselves in terms of class solidarity that you have this successful strategy of social control. And so the struggle against white supremacy from this perspective, and this is a perspective that goes way back. It goes back to the um, anti-racist uh, organ organizing of the Communist Party in, starting from the 1920s. Um, but the idea was that the, the struggle against white supremacy has to be taken up by white workers because in the, in the final analysis, white supremacy, while it gives them immediate advantages, it allows them 
to take uh, a position of privilege with relation to black workers, it also entrenches them in the system which exploits. And so they have to take up the struggle, uh, the struggle against white supremacy in order for there to be a class solidarity in which the working class can confront its common exploiter. It's time for our final break. This time we'll play Prosperity Sphere, another piece from Micaiah McRaven's 2018 album, Universal Beings. When we return, Assad Haider will speak to what it means to get organized in ways that persist beyond spectacular moments of unrest and rebellion. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is The Limits to Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising with critical theorist Assad Haider. In this final segment, Haider insists on the need for building revolutionary organizations that sustain beyond the current level of unrest and rebellion and provide a formidable challenge to the system of racial and economic oppression. What are the current conditions that are inhibiting or compelling the formation of such organizations? And what prospects does organizing based on cross-racial solidarity have coming out of the current moment? So Asad, one of the questions that you raised um, in Mistaken Identity, and this is specifically um, in in sort of a historical uh, survey of Amiri Baraka's trajectory. And, and you pose this specifically to the, the new communist movement in mistaken identity. It's the question, how could a revolutionary organization be built in the forbidding climate of American politics? And so kind of putting that question back to you, but in, rather than facing the 1970s, um, considering it in the current political moment, um, I'm interested in your thoughts of what are sort of the prospects of a revolutionary organization that is to be formed on the basis of cross-racial solidarity in opposition to forms of neoliberal capitalism right sort of right now today well it was a serious problem that in the united states you didn't have mass communist parties um the way that you did in in other advanced capitalist countries in europe you know to, to make the comparison at the level of uh what these social formations look like 
Um, and that's part of the problem because, of course, the, the, the communist parties in Europe were attempting integration into the capitalist state. They were attempting to, they, they were highly bureaucratic. They were attempting to um, kind of take a position within capitalist development in which, you know, they could enter into the state and they could direct capitalist development towards the interests of the people. And uh, this meant that they ended up taking a great distance from the actual political activity of the working class, which was um, antagonistic towards capitalist development. You know, it, it wasn't as though there was an alliance between um, bosses and workers in the, in, in the name of uh, development that would be to everyone's benefit. There was um, a great deal of uh, heightened exploitation that workers were resisting. But at the same time, the fact that the mass communist parties existed was an enabling condition for the development of other organizations that went beyond that. And that didn't exist in the U.S. And so what did happen in the U.S., one of the most significant political mobilizations, emancipatory political sequences in the U.S. was precisely the civil rights movement, which caused a level of social change that's simply extraordinary by you know, any measurement. That was kind of the basic sequence that people were responding to in the 60s and after. And as I said, starting in 1965, further on, that model enters into crisis. You have black power and black nationalism as different strategies of responding to that crisis. You know, so, you know, black nationalism, and this is what I go into in the chapter on Baraka, is that black nationalism was oriented towards building alternative institutions to white society rather than trying to integrate into white society. And so this was a totally different approach, and it was trying to respond to these new conditions. It was really prevalent in the northern cities. But at the same time, because of the legal changes that the civil rights movement had introduced, because of the strategy of alternative institution building, you also had that, that, that laid the groundwork for the possibility of a new black political class to rise up and you know, uh, take control of city politics, and do basically what I was describing the Communist Party bureaucracy is doing in Europe. They would separate from their grassroots base and become integrated into the political structure, to the existing political institutions. And in the context of the 1970s, in which austerity is being imposed, this meant taking measures that went totally against the interests of the grassroots base that had put those politicians in power. And that was a crisis. And, um, you know, in all of the complicated things that are happening at this point, the really striking thing that happens uh, on the U.S. left is that you get a thousand different micro-sects of different Marxist-Leninist organizations in the 1970s that um, are trying to come up with a strategy for anti-capitalist organization, but are also at the same time... Um, eating each other alive, kind of um, driving themselves into irrelevance uh, and ultimately disintegrate. And, and yet that's our history. That's what we have. I mean, that's, that's something that we have to study and take seriously and we have to understand the problems they were facing, the achievements that they made, as well as the uh, failures. And so now we we're still living through the consequences of that disintegration and fragmentation. We're living through 
the fact that um, no unitary, no, no united front against the existing system was really able to congeal. And that's still the challenge now. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is The Limits of Spontaneity and Other Lessons of the Uprising. Episode producers Bella Bravo and Cole Nelson speak with historian and critical theorist Assad Haider about the history of revolutionary struggles in the United States that tie together anti-capitalism and anti-racism, exploring how that history relates to the struggles of today. The, the juxtaposition right now that's the most um, significant that we have to think through the most is the one that was between the Bernie Sanders campaign and the uprisings right now, which is that the Bernie Sanders campaign popularized socialism. It made socialism something that people could discuss as a political possibility. It popularized the idea of taking radical measures against economic inequality. At the same time, it was oriented towards entering into the state, and so it had to accept the limits and terms that were imposed by the state. Now what we're seeing in the uprisings is a direct antagonism towards the state. The way that the left was relating to the Bernie Sanders campaign, this is something that was not uh, adequately thought through. That is, there was the goal of entering into the state, but there wasn't enough work in developing organizations and institutions that were independent of the state, that were independent of the capitalist state, which, you know, once again, even though, even if we recognize the importance of changes happening within the state, of reforms happening within the state, history gives us very clear lessons about this. Reforms don't happen within the state and they can't be preserved within the state unless there's pressure from outside, unless there's not only the radical challenge to the existing order that forces the ruling class to make concessions, but also the proposal of level of democracy which involves the majority of people rather than delegating politics to uh, a minority of people who ultimately are incorporated into the existing division of wealth. And so while the Bernie Sanders campaign was a very important development, there wasn't enough of this um, questioning of the capitalist state. There wasn't enough of this attempt to develop alternatives to the capitalist. And now what we're seeing with the uprisings is direct antagonism to the state. You know, and, and direct antagonism specifically to the repressive apparatus of the state, which is important because if you have movements that are trying to achieve economic reforms, in the last resort, if those challenges to economic inequality, if those challenges to the existing structure of exploitation become too radical, the capitalist state will in the last resort use force to preserve the existing order. This has happened repeatedly throughout history. So now the fact that we're seeing direct antagonism towards the state is something which is demonstrating that there was something missing in the, in the kind of left activity which, was, which preceded this. So I, I, I mean, the left has to absorb this lesson. It has to find a way of following through on the new challenge that these rebellions have put on the table and responding to that, being able to take up those demands, being able to develop them into a continued and sustained challenge to the system. That's the challenge we face. Now, like concretely, 
what will that look like? Well, I think it's very important that we don't say that this is going to look like anything that we already knew before. Because if we have pre-existing models and blueprints, that is going to prevent us from being able to recognize the new processes that are taking place. You know, existing organizations can't just say, okay, now we're going to take leadership of this movement and we're going to just kind of um, uh, slot ourselves in. Existing organizations have to transform themselves on the basis of the new challenge that the rebellions have provided. And they have to, all of us have to pay attention to what new organizational forms will arise out of the rebellion. So we can't, um, we, we can't try to impose pre-existing conceptions we have of organization in this moment. We have to be able to participate in the rebellion, affirm their importance, and observe and develop the new practices that come out of them. our show one more track from Micaiah McRaven's 2015 album in the moment titled next step thank you to Assad Haider for situating the current uprisings in the United States within a tradition of cross-racial revolutionary organizing that has and continues to emphasize the interconnected demands for racial and economic justice Bella Bravo and Cole Nelson produced this episode Sean Milligan edited the audio Music and mixing was done by Doug Storm, Cade Young is executive producer, and I'm your host and producer, Brady Heberlin. Thank you for listening to Interchange on WFHB. Interchange.